Hello, and welcome to the Green Majority. We are Canada's longest-running environmental news hour, and we thank you dearly for listening. We are broadcast out of CIUT in Toronto, right here, and also on many community radio stations across the country and on many podcast platforms. And my name is David Hostetter. I'm Stephen Hostetter. And I'm Lauren Latour. And we are the hosts of The Green Majority. And today we are going to be talking almost entirely about all the fight against old growth tree logging in British Columbia. Uh, Lauren will be interviewing Torrance Cost, the National Campaign Director of the Wilderness Committee, about the activism against old growth logging that he's been doing for a long time. But first, we were going to make a note about new revelations, unsurprising revelations about the genocide that is still happening in this country. Yeah, it's impossible not to note uh, that, you know, this June is the beginning of Indigenous History Month, and which begins just a few days after the bodies of 215 children were found in an unmarked mass grave at Kamloops Indian Residential School. And on Monday, the, the National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations, Perry Belgard, called for this horrific finding to be, quote, a catalyst for further work uncovering these graves at the sites of these residential schools across the country. And I would ask uh, us to take a moment of to pause today and sit with this reality and to honor the 215 children who have been found, as well as the many uncounted more who are still missing. And for those of us who are settlers, I would encourage us to read and understand and demand the adoption of the 94 recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation Committee, which begin with child welfare. But this work cannot simply be done by our institutions. It's the work that must be done by all of us as well. And so for those of you who have the means, I would like encourage folks to donate to the Indian Residential School Survivor Society, and I'll post this in the show notes which you can find at greenmajority.ca. And the it's impossible to advocate for a the response to climate change that does not center and begin with the rights to for indigenous peoples as the destruction of their homelands and the steal, stealing of their homelands you know is a central part to the colonial machine that has gotten us to where we currently are today and so often you know indigenous folks are on the front lines fighting uh, the, the, these different extractive processes uh, and you hear this all the time and so for those of us who stand in solidarity with these people, it can't only be at times when it is useful uh, from a climate change perspective, but must also be uh, throughout our entire lives. And this is complicated work, but I think it's necessary work. And this country that we call Canada has to reckon with that. The only way to get to reconciliation is through truth, but also through reparations, also through land back, and also through, you know, if we're not moving resources, then we're 
just obfuscating the need to do that with fancy words. And so resources have to come first, uh, and then we can start talking about uh, truth, and then we can start talking about reconciliation, but it has to start with material changes in, in the lives of people who are alive today. But, but to you, Lauren. I just want to um, reflect really briefly on something that I've seen brought up um, in the last few days um, on social media and, and in writing I've seen online. Um, there's sort of this idea that we have to also sit with in addition to these sort of horrors that we're, that we're working through right now. And it's the idea that um, it shouldn't have taken finding a mass grave with the bodies of all these children for us to take seriously the realities of residential schools and colonization within this country, especially as it was, as it was sort of um, perpetrated onto and done upon small children. Um, it's, it's been brought up that these are stories that have been told by um, elders in indigenous communities and, and, and folks who honestly are young enough that they wouldn't necessarily even be considered elders for a really long time now, um, for at least as long as I have been an adult, um, I have been aware to a degree of residential schools and we've all been like going through this learning process um, as white settlers. But, um, but yeah, it, it shouldn't have taken sort of these, um, this, this forensic evidence for us to really reckon with and take these realities and these stories seriously, because these are things that have been talked about for a really long time now. And these are traumas that we are requiring indigenous communities to relive over and over and over again, every time they tell these stories. So these are things that like people are people online are like, this is so heartbreaking. What can I do to make a difference? And time and again, I'm seeing, I'm seeing indigenous people who are, who are having to take on the labor of, of educating saying the truth and reconciliation commission was, has already been done, was written years ago and years ago, I think back in 2015, it was released. And back in 2015, it was requested that, um, that the, the sites around residential schools be exhumed and, 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 um, and be mapped for instances just like this, because it's believed there are mass grave sites like this all across this country we call Canada. And, um, and, and that was a proposal that was shot down because it was, it was slated as costing too much money. It was, it was going to require $1.5 million to do this work. And the government rejected this idea. So, so these are things that we have known. These are things that we should know. These are things that we've been told over and over again. So I think just in addition to sitting with the, with the heartbreaking reality of, of this discovery is also asking us why it is, why it has taken us this long and why it took quite literally exhuming these bodies and bringing them up from the earth for us to take this seriously and have these conversations.
so now we're going to look at some notes about the logging in BC that our uh, contributor Chris has provided before going to uh, Lauren's interview with um, Torrance Cost. So Chris writes, um, over 150 people have been arrested so far, blocking roads in the Ferry Creek watershed on Vancouver Island in BC. The RCMP has been enforcing a BC court injunction that restricts access to the area in order to allow the logging company Teal Jones Group to cut down some of the last patches of old-growth forest in the province. The activists who set up the first blockades back in August of 2020 are seeking to stop or at least slow down the logging of these ancient old-growth trees, some of whom are over 1,000 years old. Old growth is prized because you can sell it for a higher price, and the wood is of a higher quality. The RCMP recently went in and removed almost everyone, uh, but the protesters so far keep moving back into the site as quickly as others are removed by the police. There have also been protests in downtown Victoria, and there are others planned. There's one in Toronto soon, I think. And so the Ferry Creek site is on the traditional territory of the Pachida First Nation, who signed a revenue-sharing agreement with the logging company in 2017. Pachida leaders have declared their support for the company and have asked so-called third-party activists to leave the area. Pachida Chief Frank Cuisto Jones and Chief Counselor Jeff Jones wrote in an open letter, quote, Our rightful ownership and management of forest resources within our territory need to be acknowledged, and we do not welcome or support unsolicited involvement or interference by others in our territory, including third-party activism. Other members of the Pachida First Nation support the activists, including uh, Elder Bill Jones, who released a statement on April 13th disputing Frank Cuisto Jones' claim to the hereditary chief title and saying that he is, quote, not eligible to make the claim for the Jones family line and is not informed by the hereditary system amongst our peoples. Bill Jones' niece, Katie George Jim, is one of the activists who have been arrested at the blockades. The Pachida First Nation is also nearing the completion of a, lands, of a land claims agreement, which is a kind of modern treaty with the provincial and federal government. Such agreements are products of a complex and slow-moving process that can easily be derailed or delayed. Critics of land claims agreements argue that they take large portions of land away from First Nations in return for a cut of the profits of resource extraction and some marginal control over their own internal affairs. It's often perceived that resource extraction will occur whether or not any agreement has been reached, and that such an agreement is one of the few ways to gain anything from a settler colonial process, otherwise outside uh, of the control of the First Nation. Critics also claim that the biggest losers in land claims agreements tend to be those in the nation who subscribe to a more traditional way of living. In any case, old-growth activists are continuing to apply pressure on the provincial government, as the NDP government is failing in its 2017 election promises to significantly change the way that logging operations are regulated and to uphold the spirit of the Great Bear Rainforest Agreement of 2016. 
A report released in May showed a 43% increase in new old-growth areas approved for logging after the provincial government received the recommendations of the old-growth strategic review panel, which called for greater protection of such areas. There's been a huge surge in applications for permits as logging companies anticipate future restrictions. A report last summer estimated that the re- that the remaining old-growth forest in B.C. would be gone within 12 years. In contrast, it can take 400 years for a western red cedar to reach its mature old-growth stage. British Columbia also recently received an F grade for nature conservation and biodiversity protection in a new report by EcoJustice and the Wilderness Committee. The report found that BC is failing to meet international targets set in 2010 and committed to by Canada as a signatory to the UN Convention on Biodiversity. BC is one of the few provinces to lack any sort of endangered species legislation, another promise broken by NDP Premier John Horgan. The province's current forestry laws actually prohibit the government from reducing the industrial timber harvest by more than 1%. So the right to destroy public lands, as well as unceded indigenous lands for private profit, which comprises the single most significant source of profit in the province, is protected under law. The Eco-Justice and the Wilderness Committee report uh, estimates that 1,300 different species are at risk of extinction in B.C. In between... Uh, the interview that you'll hear in half a second and the release and our conversation today, uh, Horgan actually released new forestry plans for BC. And we wanted to give you a quick update on those before uh, before you go into the deeper dive with, with Torrance in half a second. And so here are the quick highlights of, of the plan. And then, and then Lauren will jump in with the response from w- the Wilderness Committee. So, Big highlights from the plan, there will be no immediate reprieve for Fairy Creek old-growth logging. There's no new old-growth deferrals, but more consultation is promised. No new, so they, they, they are planning to have new, new old-growth plans by 2023, but that does mean that, those, that our current state will continue until then. There will be some major changes to forestry tenure, half of which currently is controlled by five major companies. Uh, there's a new governmental power to redistribute tenures to Aboriginal and local communities. There will be compensation for tenures taken that, that, that are taken away from companies. And there will be a, a double the annual allowable cut for, for Indigenous groups from 10% to 20%. For context, uh, major changes to BC's old growth and forestry policies will come into effect at 2023 at the earliest, which is six years of the current NBC government's BC government's uh, entry into power. This is a uh, information pulled from Rob Shaw, so thanks to Rob Shaw. But so that was that, that's what's happening. Uh, the response from the Wilderness Committee, Lauren. Yeah, so this, um, the quotes I'm, I'm pulling come from a press release that was put out on uh, Tuesday, June the 1st. Um, full press release is available on the Wilderness Committee's website. It's wildernesscommittee.org. But um, here are a few quotes that we've pulled um, in response to, to the recent announcement. Horgan made an election promise to stop logging old growth, and now he's trying to change the channel and talk about who should be logging and how. 
The goals of the intentions paper are worthy, but frankly, this announcement today looks like a brazen attempt to misdirect and dodge responsibility and will only increase public anger over, over the destruction of old growth forests. People are furious to a degree I've never seen. They know how dire things are, and they know that talk and log is completely unacceptable, Koss says. Not a single one of the 20 policy intentions announced today is achievable without social license and without any immediate action on old growth, the government will continue to lose that. Um, the Wilderness Committee is calling for immediate deferrals of all at-risk old-growth forests with complete compensation for First Nations, other communities, and contractors who may lose revenue and income as a result, along with a mandated timeline for the implementation of the rest of the old-growth strategic review panel's 14 recommendations. And then if you're in Toronto, there is a solidarity action happening on June 13th at Nathan Phillips Square. All right, now we're going to take a break and come back with Lauren's interview with Torrance Cost, the National Campaign Director of the Wilderness Committee. All right, and we are back, Green Majority listeners. My name is Lauren, your faithful host, and I am here today with Torrance Cost from the Wilderness Committee. We're going to talk about what's going down at Ferry Creek. How are you doing today, Torrance? I'm doing all right. Thanks so much for having me on the show. So stoked you're here. We don't have a ton of time, so we'll just jump right in. Can we start with the basics? Can you give us kind of a really rough explainer about what currently is going down at Ferry Creek? Right. So very simply, there's logging blockades. There's dozens, uh, if not hundreds of citizens that are putting their bodies on the line and getting in the way of uh, logging equipment and construction crews that are in there to build roads and to cut down trees in old growth forests. The key piece that I think is, is missing in a lot of the conversation is Fairy Creek's kind of being used as a catch-all term. It is the location where this iteration of old growth blockades started back in, in August of 2020, August 10th, 2020. But since then, uh, demonstrators have grown their efforts and there are now about half a dozen blockades protecting old growth forests in four different watersheds and Ferry Creek is only one of them. RCMP enforcement began last week, the second to last Monday in May. And since then, there's been, I think the, the toll as of, as of the end of the month here is uh, 140 arrests. The vast majority of those have actually been in a different location called the Kaikus Valley. And it's, you know, 20 or 30 kilometers north and west of Ferry Creek as the crow flies. So this is a, a regional issue. And again, Ferry Creek is, is iconic as an unlogged watershed, which is extremely rare on the island and, and in the province of British Columbia. But yeah, it's a, it's a broad movement with, with blockades kind of spread all over uh, the back roads on, on southwestern Vancouver Island. 
Okay, so that was actually going to be my follow-up question. So these these four watersheds, they're all in that southwestern sort of quadrant of Vancouver Island? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. The closest towns are, are Port Renfrew, which is a growing uh, kind of tourism area, and then Lake Cowichan, kind of in the middle south part of the island. But yeah, a collection of, of remaining intact old growth. A lot of Vancouver Island, uh, the east, the kind of the east coast uh, where a lot of people live, you know, from Victoria up through Duncan, Nanaimo, Courtney Comox, most of that forest has been logged at least once. So to get out into the old growth, you have to get out to the west coast. And yeah, the, the southern part of the island is, is more accessible and, and more people are aware of what's at stake there. And, and that's kind of the, the focal point of these blockades. Okay. And one more sort of context setting question of the 100% of forest that remains on on Vancouver Island, how much of that is old growth? I mean, it depends on on which semantics you're using. So so this is a, a huge hot issue of debate in BC and it's easier to go by the BC wide numbers. So about two thirds of BC's land area has forest on it. And of that two thirds, one fifth has never been logged. So one-fifth could technically be called old growth. The problem is that uh, government and industry argue that's plenty. They say, oh, there's one-fifth. A lot of that won't ever be logged. The problem is that the vast majority of that, and and again, one-fifth of two-thirds of BC is, is still millions of hectares, but the vast majority of that is at higher elevation or farther north uh, latitudes, and it's smaller trees, it's less biodiversity, it's less of the values that are associated with old growth, and less of, you know, when listeners close their eyes and picture the term old growth, most unlogged forest is not that. And so, you know, on Vancouver Island and across BC, the percentage of the forests that can grow the biggest trees, hold the most biodiversity, sequester the most carbon, provide the most resources, uh, traditional resources for Indigenous nations, those are, are very low numbers. We're talking two or three percent. Right. So when you're referring to those higher altitude sections of old growth, it's not like, like you said, when I close my eyes and imagine it, it's not like the Great Bear Rainforest with that's right. bears that's wandering right. through it. And, okay. That's right. And those ecosystems have their value, but they're very uh, overrepresented both in the percentage of remaining forest and in protected areas, because it's so easy for governments to set aside these higher elevations. Protected areas, most provincial parks in BC, for example, are in mountains, right? When you think about the big national parks in the Rockies, they're, they're all quite high elevation. And, and it's because a lot of these forests are of lower economic value to the logging industry, and therefore the government's less resistant to set them aside. Right, of course, it's land that wouldn't necessarily be developed anyway. Okay, so can you explain for me a little bit sort of how and why things have sort of reached this fever pitch that they're at right now? For listener context, you and I have been friends for several years now, and I've sort of, I've always seen you posting about sort of the loss of old growth forests on the West Coast and and all the amazing organizing that you and your community are doing out there. What's different about the fight over the last few weeks and few months and yeah, how things look differently than they maybe did before. I guess yeah. what, what has made this national news is what I'm asking. It's more urgent. You know, there's there's kind of two big reasons for that. The first has been that 
it's taken quite a while to undo a lot of the perception, you know, that was created by essentially the environmental movement, you know, celebrating some of its wins in the 90s areas like Clackwood Sound, and then a lot of really intentional and really well done messaging from government and industry that, hey, this is a resolved issue, old growth forests are preserved. The efforts of, of the Wilderness Committee, where I work, and, and other organizations and thousands of activists has been to push back on that and to say, look, you know, there are still these forests that are unprotected and they're being logged. And that is, is an ecological uh, problem for, for various reasons. That's the first reason this kind of, you know, re-reminding of, of the public and, and kind of getting back into the public consciousness that this is something that's a live at stake issue and the decisions we make today will have a big impact. And then the other piece is just the urgency. So old growth, you know, there was a, a good argument for people to get involved in activism and protect old growth forests in the 90s when there was a lot of these kind of iconic protest movements, you know, in the 80s, the Wilderness Committee was founded in 1980 to work on this issue. So this isn't a new problem, but it's more dire, right? We see this with the climate crisis and, and the biodiversity crisis. We, we are, it is very late in the game. And I think, you know, people understand that and people feel that really viscerally. And there's very strong uh, responses to that. There's quite a broad understanding that, you know, we're having this conversation in 2021 and we're talking in part about activism that happened in the 90s there won't be this kind of forest activism in, in 2041, for example, because the issue will be settled one way or another. Yeah, that's, that's kind of a frightening thought one way or the <laughs> other. But um, so what was it like, you, you did say that like some of the reason that we're sort of why we are where we are right now is because there was this perception that this battle was fought and won in the 90s. Why is it that there is that perception that, that it was one is was there like a landmark case or something that people thought everything was kind of like wrapped up neatly with a bow? Or was it just like, issue fatigue. There were some strides made, no question about it. There were some couple uh, forestry laws passed and then uh, a pretty big spike in protected area creation. And we've been reminded of this more in the last four years in BC than we were prior to that because the government in the early 90s was an NDP government. And so the current NDP government is really, really keen to talk about that. And, you know, it's, it's very self-congratulatory in the sense that, you know, Premier Horgan was an aide in the Premier's office at the time, right? And, and a lot of the party uh, brass was in the picture back then. So they see it as their work and their positive contribution to the province. So that's a piece of it, is that there was some actual change that did make a difference, hard fought. You know, the NDP didn't do it willingly. They were basically dragged there kicking and screaming. And then the other piece is just the effort to frame this as a, as a finished issue, right? We see it from logging companies that put, you know, tremendous amounts of money into greenwashing the industry and calling it the, the best in the world, the most sustainable. We see it from government as well, from big forest industry unions, you know, uh, union leaders have said, hey, you guys won in the 90s, you guys should be, you know, sitting on your lawn, sipping daiquiris at this point. Um, so, you know, there, there's a huge concerted effort to kind of, you know, turn the public's attention away from this and call it a settled issue. And partly the rise of, you know, how much better a film technology has got in the last, you know, in the last 20 years, right? Like the best you know, highest funded documentary film crew that went out to film at Clackwit, you know, in the 90s, I can shoot better footage on my iPhone now, right? It's just changed that much. And with social media, it's so much easier to get that out there. So yeah, I think that has to do with why it wasn't forgotten about. 
but it definitely having a moment of, of prevalence that it hasn't in at least a decade, if not longer. One more question kind of related to this. It just sort of came up for me right now. Is there a conversation, obviously, within the sort of distinctly climate world, the concept of just transition is one that's like being hit over the head all the time. We're constantly talking about it. Is there any conversation of like just transition for the logging community out in BC? There is. There is. You know, in, in some quarters, it's a, it's a very defensive issue, you know. And, and again, the, I've talked a little bit about the spin and the messaging and the framing by government and industry often aided, you know, and, and contributed to by mainstream media that uh, the loss of jobs is related to conservation. Right. The, the, the loss of jobs is more related to the fact that we've cut down too many forests too fast for too long. And also like many resource or uh, production industries, it's, it's mechanization. Right. Companies, when it's time to upgrade their mills where most people in the forest industry work, that's another huge piece. The vast majority, almost three quarters of forest industry jobs aren't in the forest. They're in log sorts and mills, turning those logs into things rather than cutting them down and pulling them out. And when companies upgrade those mills, more and more, they're either moving them to other jurisdictions where there are weaker labor laws, uh, maybe weaker laws on emissions. Lots of big players in BC relocate mills down to the Gulf Coast or the southeastern United States where decades of uh, austerity and, and right-wing governments have, have made a pretty friendly climate if you run a, a big, dirty, polluting mill or want to. And mechanization, you know, if it's cheaper for a company to spend a couple million on, on some new mill technology that will allow it to replace some workers and their union salaries, they're going to do that, right? This is a huge problem and it's not just linked to uh, forestry, it's across a bunch of other industries as well. So there is that conversation. There still is a lot of bad blood between the environmental movement and and people that want to talk about more conservation and folks that and communities that depend on the industry. There's some progress, right? The relationship between unions and environmental groups is improving, but it's slow. And yeah, you know, the, the framing, like you'll still see media headlines that call what's happening in the Kaikus and at Ferry Creek anti-logging blockades. I've never met anyone, you know, associated with a group or out on a front line that says we should have no more logging, right? It's, it's that the last of these old growth forests should be set aside. So there's definitely room to be done on that front. And, and I think, you know, the two questions are, are super related. The efficiency of the BC forest industry is terrible. We have the biggest forest industry, bar none, in Canada in terms of dollars and in terms of jobs, but we also have the most inefficient. So Ontario, Quebec, most other provinces that have any forest industry to speak of, they get more dollars and more jobs per tree cut or per unit of timber harvested per cubic meter. And that's a huge piece, right? There are some reasons for that. BC is a smaller domestic market than the two biggest provinces. You know, we're not as close to big population centers in the US like Quebec and Ontario are. And there's a, a gigantic market uh, for raw materials across the Pacific in China, Japan, and Korea. And so lots of timber and forest products go there relatively unprocessed. So how we make the industry more efficient, how we get more jobs with the same amount or less wood cut, that's a question that I I'm really interested in, but it's, it's a hard topic to kind of force into the conversation because there's so much interest. There's so much stake in cutting these big old trees because they're so valuable. Of course, that juxtaposition between trying to take the time to build those relationships and build that trust. And it's, it's a phrase that I, I hear increasingly used the idea that we need to like work and organize at the speed of community and at the speed of trust. Well, at the same time, like you said, these companies 
in some ways are really inefficient, but at the same time, they're really good at logging really, really fast and, yeah. and making more sort of inroads quite literally every day. Yeah. So there's that sort of juxtaposition there. But okay, staying in sort of the like 90s versus 2020 beat for one second longer, how has organizing to preserve old growth forests changed over the years, sort of tactically and strategy or strategically? I'm wondering what's different. I think in the way I sort of thought about it in my head, if you were to like take an pro old growth forest activist from the 90s and drop them into what's happening in Van- yeah. on Vancouver Island today. Yeah. What would, yeah. I mean, there's the, big, there's the big obvious day-to-day pieces like encrypted text messages. Those weren't a thing. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, I signals spoke, new. <laughs> yeah, I spoke a little bit about the importance of, of digital technology and, and, and that goes for organizing, right? Like so many people, I think the Fairy Creek Blockade Instagram account has more than 20,000 followers and that ability to get for the movement to get its own messages out is, is so, so different. And again, videos and, and, and photos speak, speak louder than words or newspaper articles. And, and so the ability to really convey what's happening in often remote areas, that is just night and day difference. The bigger kind of the bigger political piece, the bigger ethical piece is just the uh, increased understanding around Indigenous rights and the complexities of that. So, you know, there's there's a lot of really good writing uh, about the environmental movement in the 90s and this kind of obsession with big trees and these words like pristine or untouched or virgin, right, in, in describing what had been homelands of Indigenous people since time immemorial. So that is, it's changing. It's not where it should be by any means. Terms like eco-colonialism, you know, are still, are still really important uh, to be cognizant of and to work to push out of our work. And the complexities of that, right? What does solidarity with Indigenous rights, what does respect for sovereignty on these lands and waters mean? That's a question that is by no means solved and and huge swaths of the public and the environmental movement are grappling with that. The national example that's still semi-fresh in folks' minds just before COVID hit, across the country, people were were gripped with what's owed in solidarity protests. And that conversation about when one part of a of an indigenous community, one part of a one one governance structure wants one thing and then another and and, com- and community members from a First Nation says say another, what's the right line to support? I think that we kind of took the lid off that conversation with what's at the national level. And then COVID came and kind of flipped everything and a lot of that work still needs to be done and, and we see it with first nations communities right so there's no i mean the, the idea that the first nations aren't monoliths you know that there's there's far more understanding of that i would say than there was in the 90s and if there's an indigenous community on the west coast of vancouver island with 500 people it's entirely possible there's 500 different positions about what to do with old growth forests so what does moving forward in an ethical way like what does that look like right and at fairy creek the, the band council has uh, supported the logging and not the protests and that's a that's a huge piece that we're that we're grappling with and that that work needs to be done recognizing that at the same time the ecological emergency that's at play was created by colonialism right it was created by resources being allocated, dispossessed from Indigenous peoples, handed over to 
to corporations who are still largely calling the shots and that sense of urgency, right? It would be better, of course, if we had years to focus just on how to decolonize our activism and decolonize the way we relate to forests, but we don't old growth being logged every day. And, and so most people are trying to do better. There's a ton of work to do, but that piece, that kind of discomfort, I imagine, again, I was just a little kid in the 90s, but I imagine that's more kind of front and center. It's certainly something that's front and center for me. And I don't imagine it was as big a part of the calculus for people in the movement in the 90s. No, I'd have to imagine you're right. If what I learned in my like third year eco-feminist seminar was, yeah. was right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was in some ways a bit of a, no, I don't want to be too critical. Not the time for that right now. Yeah, yeah. We, we need to move forward on that. And I think that mm-hmm. you can acknowledge that some progress has been made. There's still a long way to go. And, you know, mistakes are mistakes and, and learning from them is the key. And in my view, there's been some learning, but not near enough. And that kind of focus is a different, it's of different importance now. Absolutely. Well, it's good to hear that those shifts are starting to happen within the movement. Okay, moving back to sort of the here and now. So John Horgan, I was reading, did make some promises on the campaign trail last fall about old growth logging practices and how he would sort of like work to shift those paradigms and those practices. In a nutshell, what were those promises? And has, has John Horgan or the NDP government made any progress towards fulfilling them? Right. So partly by virtue of not being in office for, for most of this century, the NDP has been able to successfully position itself as the better of the two major parties on, on environmental issues. In its first term of government from 2017 until last fall, they were in a mi- minority parliament uh, s- supported by the Green Party. And, you know, the, the expectations were high. And instead of coming out and, and, you know, slowing or limiting old growth logging, they said, look, we need a solution that's going to last and we need to do it right. And so we're going to do a strategic review of forest policies. And we criticized it at the time as, as a classic, you know, 25-year-old term in BC is talk and log, right? So the government talks and the companies log. And, you know, there wasn't a ton of difference in, in the NDP's approach. They commissioned this report. They struck a, a two-person independent panel of expert retired professional foresters whose credentials are, are pretty unassailable. And they did what is the most comprehensive review of forest policy basically that's ever been done in BC. And they gave a report to government just over a year ago, a few months after that government published it. And it's solid, frankly, it's a good report. It calls the status quo unsustainable. It says that there's lots of values in forests, but only timber and timber harvesting have been prioritized for a long time. And that what's required is a a paradigm shift. All things that groups like the Wilderness Committee have been saying, you know, since day one, when we were founded in the 80s. And so to see that in, a, in an official independent government report was really encouraging. The government announced some initial measures, which were partly because of, of the way they messaged them. They're much weaker than they initially made out. They said they set aside 350,000 hectares of old growth, when in reality, it was a lot less of that. It was a lot more of that really, really low productivity old growth with the smaller trees that we talked about earlier. And, you know, they said, this is a first step. We're committed to this paradigm shift. The panel made 14 recommendations. Government said, we're going to commit, we're going to commit and implement those. This was in September of 2020. And just a few weeks after releasing the report, the Oregon government called the snap election. 
you know, I think they saw the writing on the wall with the second wave of COVID. They wanted to get uh, an election done. The opposition was really weak and they wanted and got a a majority government while they could. On the campaign trail, because of the kind of growing impatience around old growth, the premier just came right out and said, we're going to save old growth forests. He put it that unequivocally. He said, we're going to fully implement the panel's recommendations and save old growth forest. And the problem for the government is that a statement like that, a promise for that, like that changes the conversation. It completely changes the tone and they haven't changed enough on the ground. They haven't really changed anything on the ground. We have a GIS mapper in-house at the Wilderness Committee and him and I uh, worked on a project. I had him map all the approved old growth logging from April 2020 to April 2021. So the 12 months since government received the panel report. And we actually found a 43 percent increase in old growth logging cut block permits. So whether that's like a run on permits, so the company is trying to get all these permits in hand while they still can, or whether it actually uh, shows uh, an increase in old growth logging, I would say it's a bit of the two. We, we did this analysis because we heard from people from the Kootenays to Northern BC to the West Coast that, hey, you know, do you know if logging's going up in my area? It feels like it is. And so are the companies trying to get this old growth on the ground in case the government, in the off chance, the government keeps its promise? That's a huge concern. And so, yeah, we have a government that promised to save old growth. And I think there was a big expectation that that, you know, there's a big understanding amongst the public that that can't happen after five or six more years of the status quo. There's just not that much left. If Premier Horgan's serious about saving old growth, he needs to start making some moves, you know, six months ago. And that's where, again, the anger and the the frustration uh, is palpable. And that's why. Right. So just more of that same to use your phrase talk and log is what you've seen the last yeah yeah and you know we're hearing around some of the statements you know there's the forest minister the premier they've overinflated numbers around how much old growth is protected they've of course grossly miscommunicated the measures that they did take in september so i've heard i've heard a couple people say maybe lie and log is a bit more apt now but yeah talk and log is you know most lots of people in bc know what that means it just means you know yeah we've we've got to do better while these trees are falling. Of course. Okay, so one of my last questions, how does the outcome of what happens at, I'm saying Fairy Creek, but but we understand those Mm -hmm. sort of four watersheds across Vancouver Island, how does that maybe determine or at least affect practices going forward? Is there an expectation that there's a precedent being set or are we like past precedents being set? Are we like really in the 11th hour I'm really hoping the government will blink. It's it's not easy and there's not a lot of precedents for government saying, hey, we got it wrong. You know, we've seen a couple uh, premiers do so around the pandemic, but I'm that's the best case scenario here is that Horgan says, look, this is a little bit more urgent. We need to defer current and, and future permits to build roads and log and old growth. And that means putting money on the table, right? Obviously the pandemic, you know, is is a is a huge strain on provincial government government coffers, but it's also a sign of of just how much money we can spend when we want to. And what's happening in in old growth and and most uh, ecosystem types in BC and Canada is also an emergency, is also a crisis. And so mobilizing immediate term funds to offset revenues that First Nations and other communities might lose by setting old growth aside immediately. I'd love to see a, a fund set up to help any workers whose jobs can't be transitioned right away into second growth. 
and then committing that long-term planning to talking about what the future of forests actually looks like, right? What does, what kind of industry do we want to have operating on these lands? How do we return land and, and, and control over forests to First Nations? These are all huge questions that we need to be asking and, and we need the time to do that, right? And, and we saw in the provincial budget, which just came out at the middle of April, we saw no increase in funding to the Ministry of Forest, which is a huge concern. It's, it's a sign that the government's not really taking this seriously and they're trying to kind of pass the buck down the road a bit. Yeah, so you laid out that path for where you think things need to go and what you want to see. Can I ask you what your kind of prognosis is and how you think things are going to play out? I think what we'll see is some sort of measure and then the the, the test will be how far it goes, right? I, I can't see things continuing on this path. You know, there was a viral photo that's been seen across the world just from this week of what we call like a single log truck, like a tree trunk that's so big that in the entire logging truck, that's all that can fit in it. Whereas, you know, when they're smaller logs, you can fit tens or, or, or dozens sometimes. And yeah, it's just kind of a visual reminder of what's at stake. So I think the government will do something. You know, there's the huge question of how long the blockades at Ferry Creek and the surrounding areas can hold. The RCMP is moving really aggressively on that. And basically, can they arrest enough people fast enough uh, to get through? That's a huge question. I know how palpable the public concern and passion on this is, but I can't guess whether that will translate to a pool of people willing to be arrested the last weeks or months or longer. But I think we'll see something announced by the government probably within the coming months, whether it goes far enough or whether it's sort of, again, all governments, but particularly the BCNDP are really good at making some of their moves seem better than they are, or, you know, kind of doing a report or releasing a position statement and then equating that to actions taken. So change is needed on the ground. We need to stop logging in some old growth areas to provide time and space to make a plan. And it's it's hard to say, it's hard to be confident that the government will do that. How close to that they come is, uh, is the question that I think we're looking at in kind of the near medium term. How can listeners support not only what's happening right now on Vancouver Island, but sort of when it comes to old growth forest support long-term? what should we be doing right now and what do contributions look like going forward? Yeah, follow it as much as you can. I spoke to some of the shortcomings and the the oversimplifications. There is no kind of quick, you know, 500 word or, or two minutes at the top of the hour on CBC way to cover this topic. It's too big and too deep and too complex. And so I'd encourage people to follow, you know, Google Fairy Creek, Google Kaikous Valley, you know, figure out what's happening. There's often better information on, on social media or at least more. For the Wilderness Committee, this is one of our main campaign areas. It keeps me busy pretty much full time. You can find us at, at Wildernews on Twitter, or Wilderness Committee on Facebook, or WildernessCommittee.org online. And yeah, in terms of ways to take action, there are a lot. We're pushing people to uh, get in touch with, with their MLAs here in BC, but I don't see why uh, folks from across the country can't weigh in and, and give the Premier's office a call. He needs to know that there's not old growth forests everywhere in Canada. And, you know, the ability that they have to uh, help us in the fight against climate change and to really set us on a better path in terms of where we're headed as a species on, on a finite planet. He needs to know that that's an issue that everyone here cares about, not just voters in BC. Absolutely. Well, I mean, what's, what's going down out west is affecting everyone, ultimately, even if just tangentially. So 
what's your focus as like an individual, an organizer, an activist, a community member, and like as a pretty new dad? Yeah, I became a father just over a year ago and all the cliches are true. It changes your perspective and your outlook a little bit. It makes me feel a bit older. And I think just we need to make change faster because there isn't a lot more time. We need to have an economy that is more reflective of, of our place here. I think that the, the pandemic has shown how connected we are to people around the world and in, in a certain extent to the world around us, you know, other ecosystems, other species and figuring out kind of realigning what we do under that guise you know, there is, this is a, a rich place. And, you know, by operating a little bit more sustainably and a little bit more justly, I think we can get on a better path. There's lots of different ideas about how to do that. But I think we need to be realistic about the shortcomings. You know, we haven't managed resources properly. We've managed them for, for corporate profit for too long industry, government, civil society movements, none have done a good enough job centering Indigenous rights and the need uh, for justice for Indigenous peoples. And looking at those two problems and, and how we change direction, and again, crucially quickly, that's what I'm really interested in. My work takes me out into communities, takes me out into the field. You know, I talk to loggers, I talk to people in government, I talk to people that don't really want to hear my side of things always. But, you know, hopefully that we can kind of get past some of these differences and and push forward and again do it in the time required it's a big if but it's an exciting if too because if we can then then there is some real potential to to make things a lot better here well i think that's it for us today i've taken up a lot of your time so i really appreciate you sitting with me so you told us how to find the wilderness committee online but if yeah. people really like you and people want to hear more from you is there is there a corner of the internet they can go to yeah, I'm uh, Torrance Cost, T-O-R-R-A-N-C-E, and then Cost, like the price with an E on the end, uh, C-O-S-T-E. And you can find me uh, at that handle on Facebook or Twitter. Awesome. Well, thanks again. This was really fantastic. I really appreciate it. It was, it was valuable for me more so than anyone else. So, so <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, anytime. Thank you so much for having me on.